Hey, boss! Can this little fella here take over my shift tonight? Desperado! You got the job, kids! Everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works. Mike and I watch films separately and then we talk about them on the show for the first time. Before we start though, I want to give a big shout out to Ryan um, Udawilligan. He is an author who wrote a great book called Killing John Wayne. And it's all about the making of The Conqueror. Have you ever seen The Conqueror, Mike? I have seen clips of The Conqueror, yeah, so I YouTube. know what you're talking about. Yeah, this is a movie where where John Wayne plays Genghis Khan, and it, it's it's the worst movie ever made. And it's not one of those things where it's like Heaven's Gate that it has its admirers, or or like I told you, I watched Cleopatra, and I'm like, it's actually not as bad as everyone says. This is I watched it in its entirety. It is bad. Anyway, this book Killing John Wayne is all about how um, the the film the film was shot in the in the American Southwest on sites of nuclear testing and about the possible effects of radiation on everyone involved in the movie. And plus like Howard Hughes was the producer and he was he was you know going crazy about making sure they had the right colors of sand and everything. It's a great read. If you want to hear my interview with the author, go to the New Books Network. You can find New Books and Film wherever you get podcasts. It's a great book and it's a lot of fun to listen to him talk about it. So, but this week we're talking about what movie, Mike? Nosferatu. Nosferatu, the 1922 film by F.W. Monroe, Monroe, sorry, um, which is now 100 years old. It's 100 years old, Mike. It's maybe our oldest movie. It's wonderful. And I, I remember even having a restored edition on DVD in the early 2000s that my, that my parents got for me. But I have to say that, that the version that I was able to watch, like, streaming on youtube was just as crisp and clean as that yeah that dvd we've come a, we've come a long way the film looks great it does look great it does look great it's funny because it, it's it looks younger it looks newer than 100 years old in terms of its actual image quality but it feels older it's got this great i don't know if i make it sense here it's got this great le- like you've stumbled upon this hidden document to watch this story and it's funny i looked it up 100 years ago who was president who was president 100 years ago in 1922 calvin coolidge Harding. Harding was president, right? We uh, we have The Wasteland comes out, right? Ulysses comes out, The Beautiful and the Damned, Babbitt, Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T. Lawrence, who, you know, of course, Lawrence of Arabia, which we've done already. And it's funny, you look at a list of films from 1922, and most of them are forgotten, except like, you know, there's a film with Douglas Fairbanks and um, John Barrymore and Valentino. But here's my question I want us to start off with. Why does this film remain? Why does this movie still hit us so hard? Because it's great. Why is that? Why do you think that is? So- I was I'm going to touch more about this in my moment, but I think that this film does things filmically that you don't necessarily have to be a horror movie to to understand or a horror movie buff. If you talk about horror movies and you talk about the er horror movie, this probably is it um, truly. But I think that there's things done with perspective, with length, with characterization that all perfect movies do. I mean, my formula is this is in and out in 90 minutes. Uh, every scene is expressive. Scenes uh, start late and end early. It's 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 a beautiful film. You know, there's that mammoth quality to the structure of scenes. 
I, I like everything about this movie down to the font that they chose for the intertitles and how many uh, acts there are. Yes. Five so acts. it's, there's nothing wrong with this movie. And I think that that's, that's really why it remains. If you when sometimes when you watch black and white film or let's say early silent film, what you expect to see is something clumsily made. And this is lovingly made. And I think not, not only that, obviously the idea of the vampire Bram Stoker source material, the, the expressive gestures in this movie, they all get to something deep down in the human psyche. And so there's something elemental uh, about what drives this movie, which is, I, I think, why it remains. And then, like I'm saying, structurally, I think it informs the structure of a lot of later film, even not not just horror films. Yeah, when he's on the ship and he's coming back and you get cut in with the scenes of Ellen, you know, wandering around and you see what's going on with Nock, it's, it's you're watching it now and you're thinking, Wow, this is so early in the history of film. Like you're watching somebody invent, you know, cross cutting. You're watching somebody invent showing you three different stories happening at once and how they go together. You're watching somebody invent this idea that I want the viewer to think about how one thing overlaps with the other. And also what you said is true about how this is, it's a movie. Like when you start to get into the the talkies of the 30s, so many of them are like filmed plays where you have a lot of people in a room and and it's almost like the camera it's like it's like you got a good seat at a broadway theater this is really a movie you never feel like it's theatrical you always feel like it's a film yeah and especially when you watch or you study film and you learn about montage the name that everybody says is sergey eisenstein right. and they all they always show this famous clip from battleship potenkin as exactly what we talk about all the time which is how do you take very complicated material and break it down such that somebody do that doesn't understand what's hap happening filmically can just follow it. And I think that that's F.W. Murnau's great art is to take a complex elemental storyline or archetypal storyline, but break it down into something that you can just watch without even necessarily knowing what's going on. You don't have to be able to read those intertitles in whatever language you read. And I think you can still follow the story. And I think that that's part of what makes it so beautiful. Yeah, if the intertitles were written in the same language as Orlock's occult um, letter he sends to Nock with the, so the deed, that's so good when he's reading it and giggling. They, they might as well be written in that. The movie would still work. Like It would work like 96%. All right, in part two, we'll talk about our favorite moments. Welcome back. So, of course, in part two, we talk about key moments or our big scenes. Dan, why don't you start us off? So I have some obvious moments like Orlock coming out of the coffin on the ship, and we'll save this for part three when we talk about him. I think I think we'll end up talking about him a lot more in a minute. But I want to talk about something that really, really stuck with me is when Hutter is reading the book about the, the supernatural that, that's laying around and about the rules of being a vampire and how vampires work. And he reminded me, not during the film, but later on, he reminded me of all of us, or at least me, watching horror movies when we were kids, or maybe even now. And I mean horror movies, I don't mean slasher movies, which I don't think are scary at all. There's nothing scary about Friday the 13th or Saw or something like that. But I'm talking about like the numinous that we always talk about, like the supernatural. And I think it's great because he gets to the end, right? He says Orlock's name and all the villagers, you know, they all get, oh, you don't say that, right? And he kind of blows it off and he laughs at it to show his superiority. And that's what I find I'm like when I'm watching horror movies, like in the daytime, uh, I go to see The Witch 
And I'm like, wow, that was really good. That was really powerful. And I'm driving home and I'm like, wow, we, we should do a podcast on this. And it's got interesting things to say about spirituality and, and being ostracized from the community. And, and, you know, and then I'm very logical about it. I'm like, oh, he's a great director. Ha ha. I, I, I see right through these things. I'm very intelligent. And then you lie in bed in the house squeaks and you're like, is that Black Philip? Is that, is that Black Philip? I, I hope he's not coming to me. I, I don't want to know the taste of butter. And I think that's what happens to Hutter in the movie is that he laughs at the thing he ends up believing in. And that's kind of like our relationship, I think, with horror movies is that it, it's very easy to be to be tough when you're watching them. But then later on, when they kind of creep into your consciousness, you know, you don't become terrified of the world, but but they definitely get you in a different way later on. I think that the the movie picks up on that through some of its images, which don't necessarily make sense in our description of them, but their impression on you does, which is, uh, you know, the, out of the open hatch where Orla comes, yeah. you you sit and watch the rats multiply for a couple of minutes. And I, I don't, I don't necessarily understand why that's creepy, but I feel unsettled, but yet I, but yet I did not fast forward and I can't really explain why that should be, but I, but I feel like that is the sense of what you're, talking about yeah. but in but in a specific image yeah because it's not just two rats and then you're like it's four rats like he just keeps it going and going and going and it's a or the scene when orlock's driving the carriage and it becomes like a photo negative remember that and the forest become so that works on you in a way that you can't really understand it just it just bothers you the same way the same way that the great shot of the famous shot of orlock coming out of the casket on the ship when he's being levitated on the plank and it just it, it, the way he comes to the surface and levitates there is very dreamlike it's right out of a nightmare but it hits you in a way that's much better than like a jump scare. Yeah, and and I think that the lack of special effects it plays into that archetypal quality because it reminds you of a dream, right? You don't have right. special effects in your dream. Hollywood invents special effects to make it look realistic, but of course we don't see images like that with our eyeballs. Uh, we we see them in our brains, right? And so people just appear, people just disappear. You see smoke rising up from the ground. You make the con you make a conclusion, and so I I feel like some of the effects of this of this movie are much truer to the dream sense in which we would have seen them than uh, any kind of realistic portrayal. Yeah, and that's why that scene of him to keep going on this moment that scene of him coming out of the casket, you know, that reminded me of another famous rising in a movie we've done. That's diabolique. It's him coming out of the bathtub, right? I mean, it's the same kind of thing. And it also reminded me. And I couldn't believe it took me this long to figure this out. It doesn't it remind you of the old crone coming out of the bathtub in The Shining? Remember yes. when he goes into into the and she's coming out and she and you don't know what's lifting her out of the bathtub. It's just this terrible nightmare of her keeping and then she's out chasing Jack Nicholson around. But there's those repeated shots of her coming out of the bathtub and you don't know who's holding her and she's just kind of her she's coming out of the water and it's got that same kind of thing as in a nightmare where your your nightmare doesn't have to have great CGI. It just has to hit you in the stomach and bother you. And that's why I think those images in this movie are so good. Yeah, in a, in a nightmare, it's not necessarily that about exactly what the thing is that's happening it's about that there's a thing happening and it's totally inevitable right, right? You, you don't you never know why you're being chased you just know that you are you don't know what she's standing up for you just know that she is right and i i think that there's something about that dream sense which i think has helped the the movie endure yeah, that's why. That's why when they say the werewolf is out, and then he sees the 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 hyena. I guess it's a, it looks like a half zebra hyena, you know, 
dingo dog, but whatever it is, you look at it and, you, and I'm like, I, I don't want to look at that thing anymore. Like it's bothering me and you can't really put your finger on it. It's so much better than imagine if there, if he did have the money to make a snarling werewolf, like, like if it was John Landis doing it and he got to do the whole thing with, with American werewolf in London, you know, it's so much creepier this way because you, you're like, is that, what is that animal? And it's disturbing and all the horses are afraid. So now I'm afraid too. So what was yeah, and I will say, I, yeah. well, I will say uh, Max Shrek makes uh, Andy Serkis look like a birthday clown. <laughs> Uh, so what's your moment? My moment is when Nock is in the uh, institution and he leans up against the bars and he says, the master's coming, the master's coming. And then you get the perspective shot, which is of the river, which is where, where he's, where he's watching. And I don't necessarily know if there's been a perspective shot in the entire film up until that moment. And I don't necessarily know that there's another one. I'm not going to say it's the first one in cinema because it's probably not but it's the earliest good example that i can think of in my brain where you see a character's face and then you see what they're looking at and so you're looking as them right because it's supposed to be this horrific moment for you that the ship is slowly sailing in but because you've taken on Knox perspective it's altered somehow and you're complicit and uh, i i just like that so much it's it's one of the it's one of the things where again, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a horror movie like um, you know, like him rising up out of the coffin. It's just one of the first times somebody put together movie 101. And so how can you get away from such a brilliant effect? And you don't have to be a film scholar to understand what's going on either, right? There's just a, a very simple, there's a very simple algebra where you understand face plus thing looked at equals perspective. Uh, and it works on you no matter what language you watch a movie in. Which happens now, like which on, on cartoons. I mean, it's become such of the of the of the way that these stories are told. And that's what's so great about watching Nosferatu is like you're almost watching somebody invent a language in front of you. You don't have to watch all the trial and error, like, and it's done so well that and we take it for granted because it's the way we watch movies and the way we we watch stories that it, you you pause for a second. You're like, wow, like imagine figuring that out. Okay, so in part three, we always talk about the ending or the title or the key takeaways. Dan, what's our key takeaway? I think I think we got two key takeaways. One is that you know Ezra Pound famously said, "Literature is news that stays news," and that the, that the stuff is still working with us because it's still new. You cannot watch this film now and not think at the end, as you're getting to the end, that Orlock is like COVID. There's, there's no way around it, right? And I'm, and I'm not going to be too cute with this, but there's little things like it's a plague. The title says fear came to every house in town. Who was healthy? Who was sick? Um, and it's not just the thing like if it catches you, you die, but it's the idea that he's always there. You never know where he is. So the pandemic's over, right? We've gotten through this long, terrible thing like this town in Germany, but it's still always there. Like somebody sneezes and somebody coughs, you think of it. You still, still see people with masks on. You still worry about the numbers. Like, like, do we go back to a time where we where we don't have COVID in the back of our brains? It's kind of like you know, it's Ken Orlock, like you never know. It's a, and Ken Orlock might be gone now, but he's still going to be there in our in our subconscious somewhere. I didn't get to say this at any other part in this episode, but my favorite thing is that he buys the house across the street. I'm not sure why that's so good, uh, but it but it definitely is. There there's something different than than if he lived in another part of town or in the creepy part of town. But the fact that she just looks at the window and there's some creepy figure in the window and she says, "This is what I look at every day." Yeah, it's so good. And that the house has 750 windows. 
<laughs> like like the house across the street it's it's like you know jimmy stewart in rear window would be like there's just too many I, I can't keep track of all these people there's, there's too many windows like it, it, that's also great and she zeroes in on the one window where he's at um you know what else i love we haven't talked another movie this reminded me of that we both love a movie that you once said if somebody said how do you write a movie you would give them this script and say here's how you write a movie the verdict not close it's it, well it was that season i think it was alien like isn't this like alien, right? Yeah. The, the monsters in it. The monsters in it for for whatever three minutes of screen time. I mean, how many minutes of screen time is Count Orlock in this movie? Very, very few. But he's always there, and when he's not there, you're thinking about him. I watched a movie the other night that was not very good, um, called Niagara from 1953, I think, with Marilyn Monroe and Joseph Cotton, directed by Henry Hathaway. Not a good movie. Pretty much by the numbers kind of thing. Um, Marilyn Monroe, every scene she's in, she's she's dunking, as you love to say, she's dunking on everybody. Nobody can keep up with her. Your eye goes right to her. She she looks great. Nobody, she's doing her own thing. And then when she's not on, you're like, when's Marilyn Monroe coming back? When, when, is she in, is, when's she coming back? So when she's not on, you're watching these other people talk, but you're like, is she coming back or not? And that's a that's a goofy example. But in this movie, just like an alien, every time that um, Orlock isn't on the screen, they're either talking about him or you're worrying about him or you're thinking about him. So those moments where he's on are great, great payoffs. And it's the same idea with the same thing we see in Alien. And Nock is a great secondary character. <laughs> he, great. he really he really carries the movie somehow. He's the quint, he's the quint of this movie. And and I th- I think that the movie just gets away from them a little because he he it, he's so good that he needs to be part of that secondary ending. You know that where, where you have to find out what what happens to him. That he he says the master is dead and he just sinks sinks down to his his death um another weird thing with with alien is that the only way that the monster can be stopped is by uh the direct confrontation with the bloat of the maiden <laughs> b-l-o-o-d-e D-E, right the bloat of the maiden but isn't it isn't it funny like think about how much this is like alien like you're in this community right people start getting the ship part the ship scene is definitely like like you know the uh the Nostromo and, and, you know, and you have this, this monster, which is from the original novel with Dracula that happens on the ship too, where the guy ties himself to the, to the wheel, but you have this monster. It's a confined space. One by one, people start getting picked off. That's a great, that's probably one of the great, great parts of the novel, but certainly it's that idea that like this, this thing is among you, like the video game among us. And you have to try to figure out where it is before, before it gets all of you. The thing I really like is the ending because if, if we all sat down and had to write privately, like on a scrap of paper, how we think that this movie ends. I think there there's a common myth that this movie ends with, um, you know, somebody opening the window so that he he shrinks back and dies, which of course is is not true. They they make it clear from the little book that the only way to kill uh, the Nosferatu is uh, is that he's so distracted with the bloat of the maiden that he doesn't hear the uh, the rooster crow, and so he gets caught in the in the in the sunlight, which again is much more dream logic than it is logic logic because the ending from bram stoker's dracula is a is a description of a battle between three carriages and and somebody tries to decapitate him with a kukri you know it's it's a big action scene it's it's kind of like michael bay's dracula it really is but from you know but from the late uh, 19th century but this ending is so much better which is that just like every other dream the monster simply fades away yeah and and i think that that is also part of why this that it endures so well. It's it's much more of a contemporary film than you think. It reads like certain parts of Dostoevsky, which kind of read like they were written yesterday. 
and then you hit something archaic and you get reminded. But there are certain things that characters say. There are certain things that characters do. There's certain way that that it impacts you. That it not only feels like the news that stays news. It feels vital. Yeah. What do you make of the fact of, of how the vampire in this film looks? Because in the novel, you know, Dra- Count Dracula does not, he looks more like Gary Oldman in Copeless, but but he he's meant to be somewhat like of this, like, you know, you know, old European kind of, you know, all the servants are away, but it's, that's not really the vibe you get here. What do you make of how he looks? Max Shrek is a genius. Uh, his makeup artists were genius. Uh, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of mystique around F.W. Murnau for some reasons we don't have to get into. Uh, but Max Shrek was simply a genius. Right. He was. But it's funny, like, you know, I think a lot of people, if you if people watch this today and never saw it before, they'd be shocked by the fact that his teeth are together in the middle, like a sinister Bugs Bunny. Right. As opposed to like, you know, on the edge and his ears, you know, the, the big rat, you know, bat ears. And the way he looks is that he doesn't he's not Tom Cruise from Interview with the Vampire. Right. He's um he's uh you know, he's, he's sinister and, and, but not really like reveling in it, but certainly evil and definitely knows that it's evil. Like there, there's something very great. He, what he is, is corrupt. And, and which captures both that he's, that he's morally corrupt, but, but he is corruption in itself. Right. Because the, the modern Hollywood mystique is that vampires don't corrupt over time, but, but this looks like something that's dragging itself through eternity and and there's something even just in the way that he stands and lifts his arms that I, that I think suggests that. Yeah, this is the famous shot of his shadow walking up the staircase where you see his claws. And when he gets, yeah, it's definitely right out of a nightmare. Like there's nothing, there's no hidden sexiness about this. There's no metaphor. It is corruption. It is. And that's why, you know, I, I made that line about COVID. It is this terrible thing that's going to come and get you slowly in the night that, you know, maybe it'll be distracted and you'll get a lucky break, but you probably won't. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, if you've only seen clips of this movie or you think you know what you're talking about this is a really good chance to take 90 minutes and watch it for free uh it's streaming we'll drop a link if we can yeah it's on youtube it's great and you you could you could by the time you think about where to find it you could watch half the movie already and it goes how quickly does this film go it doesn't even feel like 90 minutes not at all not at all so thanks for listening everybody we hope you enjoyed our conversation about nosferatu you could follow us on twitter at 15min film you could also follow us on letterbox letterbox and and see what we've been watching and see what we want to watch and give us ideas for what we should watch next thanks everybody we'll see you next time